Let me welcome everyone to today's gathering um, on behalf of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, Central Library, State Library Resource Center. Um, I'm Bob Burke. I manage the Social Science and History Department downstairs, and it's um, my pleasure to be able to introduce Adam Goodhart today. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I got a newsletter from a historical society, and it, it started out with a little bit about the Civil War. And of course, all of us know the, the litany of, of battles. It has almost a biblical cadence to it. First Manassas, Second Manassas, Fredericksburg, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, etc. But they pointed out something interesting in this. Deadliest war in American history, resulting in the deaths of 620,000 soldiers and an undetermined number of civilian casualties, 10% of all northern males 20 to 45 years of age died. All northern males, 20 to 45, as did 30% of all southern white males aged 18 to 40. These are huge totals that really kind of put things in perspective. Now, one of the really great things about Professor Goodhart's book is that he humanizes the conflict. Um, 1861, Early in that fateful year, a second American Revolution unfolded, inspiring a new generation to reject their parents' faith in compromise and appeasement, um, to do the unthinkable in the name of an ideal. It set Abraham Lincoln on the path to greatness and millions of slaves on the road to freedom. Um, this book introduces us to a hitherto little-known cast of Civil War heroes. So we're, we're departing from the usual Sherman, McClellan, Grant, Lee, Jackson grouping. Um, in this grouping are an acrobatic militia colonel, an explorer's wife, an idealistic band of German immigrants, a regiment of New York City firemen, a community of Virginia slaves, and a young college professor who would one day become president of the United States. Adam Goodhart takes us from the corridors of the White House to the slums of Manhattan, from the mouth of the Chesapeake to the deserts of Nevada, from Boston Common to Alcatraz Island, vividly evoking the Union at this moment of ultimate crisis and decision. Now, it might interest you to know that 1861 is a History Book Club main selection and a Military Book Club main selection for spring 2011. And in terms of biography, Adam Goodhart is a historian, essayist, and a journalist. Uh, his articles have appeared in National Geographic, Outside, Smithsonian, and the New York Times Magazine. Um, he's actually a regular columnist for the Times' acclaimed Civil War series, Disunion. And he lives in Washington, D.C., and on our own eastern shore of Maryland, where he is director of Washington College's C.V. Star Center for the Study of the American Experience. So let's give Professor Goodhart a nice Baltimore welcome. Thank you. Um, a nice Baltimore welcome. I feel like that should be a chorus of Huns or something like that. Um, well, it's great, to, it's great to be here. You know, it's, it's customary for um, a speaker to say it's great of all of you to come out on such a rainy day. It's great of all of you to come out on such a sunny day. Um, I guess this uh, is, the, is the latter. You could be frolicking in the, su in the sunshine, and uh, instead you're frolicking with some American history. Um, let me ask, how many of you here uh, have read the book? OK, well, in that case, um, I will do a little bit of reading of the book for those of you who, uh, who have not had a chance to start it yet. Um, I'll, ask, I'll give you a chance to ask questions, but first I'd just like to tell you a bit about it. Um, this book, uh, as you've just heard, is not about the familiar litany of battles, not about Fredericksburg, Antietam, Gettysburg, Chancellorsville. And in fact, it began um, far away from those places. It began on the eastern shore of Maryland in the attic of a very old house on a very old plantation. Um, I, I teach at Washington College, and uh, I always think that it's important to bring my students out to um, tromp around and experience history where history happened. I think too many historians are bound to looking at books, looking at microfilms, looking today, um, of course, at online databases. but. I think that there are two things that, that you really have to do to 
touch the past. And one is to actually get your hands on original books and manuscripts, and the other is to go and, and walk the roads and, and pathways where people, people in the past walked. So for some years, I've been bringing my Washington College students out to a very old house uh, called Poplar Grove. And this house, this plantation, has actually been in the same family since 1669 which is a pretty long time even for Maryland, even for the eastern shore of Maryland, where there are a lot of old family properties. And uh, in fact, there's a crumbling old plantation house there that's, um, it dates back, it's fairly modern, the, the plantation house, it dates back only to about the 1720s, 1730s, not to the 1660s. And it hasn't been lived in for about 20 years, and so you turn down this long, dirt driveway lined with vine-shrouded trees on either side. And there's this house looming at the end with the old family cemetery, an old overgrown weed-covered family cemetery next to it. And almost every spring, I bring my students to this, to this property. And as we turn the college minibus, I drive the college minibus myself. I'm sort of an all-purpose professor. Um, as we turn the college minibus down this long driveway, I always say to my students, ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts. We are now leaving the 21st century. And in fact, that's what it feels like as you pull up to this plantation house. Now, I know the family um, who own this property very well, um, and they've been letting my, me bring my students there for, uh, for some years. I, I knew from previous visits that there were a lot of old family papers up in the attic of this house, but I never really delved into them to see what was there. On this particular trip, I had a group of, of students, uh, most of them freshmen, actually, and we were poking around through the house, going through these, um, through these old uh, unoccupied unoccupied rooms. It's this one of those great houses that, that rambles nicely, as they say about old houses. You go through these sort of tunnel-like doorways and up winding back staircases. And my students became especially interested in one room up in the old servants' quarters, probably slave quarters, um, up in the attic. And it was filled with family papers, family papers that uh, were stuffed into old lard cans, peach baskets, that's the sort of um, Eastern Shore style archiving. Peach baskets, lard cans, old, uh, old wooden crates and steamer trunks. And that clearly hadn't been looked at in a very, very long time. And they started looking at them and, and opening up the, uh, the papers, uh, opening up some of these bundles of old documents. So I, I'm going around saying, you know, this belongs to the family, we really shouldn't be meddling with it. And But, you know, when students get curious about something, they tend to be very persistent. There was one student in particular um, who was more persistent than all the others. Um, he was a student of mine uh, named Jim, who was very interested particularly in military history. He's a veteran of the Marine Corps in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we had heard a story from the family that there was some interesting military history involving them. We'd heard that they were involved in the American Revolution that they were involved in the War of 1812. And we had also heard that as the Civil War began, there was one family member in particular who had something happen to him. Exactly what wasn't quite clear, but he had been a U.S. Army officer stationed out on the frontier somewhere trying to decide whether to join the Confederacy or keep his loyalty to the United States. And something happened regarding his resignation or non-resignation from the, from the U.S. Army. And my student Jim had heard the story and was very interested to, to know more. Now, he said to me that afternoon, he said, I want to do my term paper on this man's story, and I want to find out the truth using the documents up here in this attic. So I sort of took a deep breath, and I said, Okay, Jim. Now, if you're going to work on history, you know, there are a couple of things that you should, you should know. Now, 
first of all, well, first of all, it's about 150 degrees up in this attic. It was late in the spring semester, I, and there were some wasps buzzing. I mean, I really didn't want to stay up in there any longer than, than we absolutely had to. But I said, you know, there are family papers up here going, as far as we can tell, all the way back through history. It turned out later when I got to know much better the content of those papers that the oldest piece of paper we found was from 1664. And it spanned from 1664 all the way up to canceled checks from the 1960s up in that room. So I said, there are a lot of papers up here. There were hundreds of members of this family, one of those families that would have you know, 10 or 12 kids in every generation. In fact, as our work on this attic became to be known, I started getting emails and phone calls saying, I am a descendant of the Emery family. And I would say, yeah, you and 10,000 other people. So many generations with many people up there. And I said, Jim, you know, there is no guarantee you are even going to find anything about this one guy up here, let alone from 1861, let alone reflecting at all on what he was up to at that moment in, in time. Um, and how are you even going to find them in this mess of papers anyway? And so uh, Jim said, well, you know, I can start taking boxes back to my dorm and sorting through them. I said, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that either. But I'll tell you what, I'll come down here with you on Saturday morning. I'll give you maybe two or three hours of my time. We can poke around a little bit. If you find them, if we find anything, great. If we don't find anything, then you have to promise me you're going to find another topic for your term paper in my class. He said, OK, it's a deal. And I thought, you know, we, we can poke around, have an interesting time, maybe find a few things that are, that are cool. Well. We started digging around, and um, one of the first things we actually, back in for a second, I think the very first interesting thing that we found was a completely X-rated poem from the 1820s. <laughs> it was amazing. We found this sheet of paper that was clearly a poem. Um, I started reading it out loud. And, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> As it got sort of worse and worse and worse. Um, it was about, uh, I mean, I had never thought of the eastern shore of Maryland in the 1820s as a particularly racy place. But this poem was about uh, a young man um, out in the cold on a snowy night, um, freezing half to death, and then climbing up to the window of a, of a young woman, rapping on the window and asking her to let him in to warm up. And then it was about all the different things that she did to warm him up all night long. Fortunately, Jim had been in the Marines, so he, this, nothing, would face, nothing would face him. So we found this poem. And then we started looking around some more. And one of the next things that we pulled out of these boxes and, and bundles of papers was a little bundle, actually a pretty thick bundle, about so thick of letters, tied up in a yellow silk ribbon that clearly hadn't been undone in more than a century. And written on the paper wrapper that covered these letters were the words, Major William H. Emery's letters regarding his resignation from the United States Army, spring 1861. So I took the bundle, I handed it to Jim, and I said, Jim, one thing you should know, it is not always this easy. In this case, it was. We undid the ribbon, and inside found an extraordinary tale. It was the story of this man, Major Emery, who was stationed out in a fort in remote Indian territory in what's now Oklahoma. And he was trying to decide, as the war began, what he should, what he should do. He was getting sort of vague reports from, from back east about what was going on. Um, wasn't entirely sure, in particular, what his own home state of Maryland was going to do. And he felt, understandably enough, a, a tug in, in different directions. Um, he was a Marylander, and Marylanders, um, as a Marylander, he felt like he was a loyal Southerner. Now, I should say, I, I gave a talk earlier this week at uh, Clemson University in South Carolina, and when I said Marylanders consider themselves Southerners, I got all these quizzical looks around the, around the room. But uh, he did. He, he had grown up on a plantation, worked by, worked by slaves, had grown up with slavery. His family still owned dozens of slaves, although he would later claim after the war that he had always felt, and his family had always felt, 
deep misgivings about the institution of slavery and had kind of secretly, privately looked forward to the day when it would be abolished. But he did feel like he was tied to the uh, to the institution, to Southern culture. And yet, and he felt like he couldn't he couldn't take up his arms he couldn't take up arms against his his native state certainly. And yet he also felt great loyalty to the United States of America. He had been serving under the Stars and Stripes literally since he was a 14-year-old taking the cadet's oath at West Point. He had fought under that flag against the Seminoles, had fought in Mexico, had served on the frontier against the Indians protecting, uh, protecting settlers. And he couldn't simply throw away that lifetime of loyalty either. But what was most interesting to me was that beyond these sort of great political, ideological, cultural considerations, he was also thinking about much more personal things, kinds of things that we wouldn't necessarily normally read about in a, in a history book. He was thinking about his friendships. He was thinking about uh, the fact that he had been at West Point with Robert E. Lee, had become good friends with Joseph Johnston, who had become one of the leaders of the one of the leading generals of the Confederate uh, Army. He had actually, he was such close friends with Jefferson Davis that his son was actually living with the Davis family at the time while he attended medical school. They were almost, almost family to each other. Their wives were, were best friends as well. So there are those considerations, those, those ties of friendship. He was also thinking about his own family and what this would mean to his family's future and his own professional future. He was thinking, well, you know, if I go with, these, with this rebel confederacy, this or new American republic, as one might call it, will I be hailed by future generations as a patriot, as a founding father, as a visionary, much as my grandfather's generation was hailed at the time of the American Revolution? Or on the other hand, will I be literally strung up from a tree as a traitor? Both things seemed at that moment, early 1861, eminently possible. And he was writing back and forth to his, his brother and his wife back here in Maryland. And each was giving him um, advice. His, his wife was living in Washington at the time, but was actually um, a northerner. She was a Philadelphian. I'm a Philadelphian myself. And... I can tell you that Matilda Emery was not just a Philadelphian, but a real, real Philadelphian. She was the great-granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin, which is about as Philadelphian as you can get. So she, you might have expected her to be saying, you know, you have to stick with the Union, stay true to the United States flag. But instead, interestingly, she was a little bit like, I think, loyal spouses now as well as then, husband and wives looking at their um, spouse's career. And she said, you know, honey, I'll support you whatever you decide to do. If you think it's a good thing for your career to, to go off and join the rebels, I'm ready to do that with you. And he was also getting mail from his, from his brother back on the plantation, concerned about what this war would mean for, for Maryland, wanting him very much to, to join the Confederacy and defend the South and its institutions by which slavery was usually meant. And in that moment, I realized that I wanted to write a Civil War story that wasn't the story of that litany of battles, but was about a moment when the Civil War wasn't yet being fought on cornfields in Pennsylvania, in peach orchards in, in Maryland, um, on hills and in valleys in Virginia and Georgia, but was being fought within thousands of American communities and families and indeed millions of individual American hearts and minds. That was the Civil War story that I wanted to tell. I felt like, you know, I've been fascinated with American history my, my whole life. I think any, anybody who's fascinated with American history has to eventually come to the Civil War. It's, as has often been said, our, our Iliad. Um, but it's, it's true, it is, our, it is our Iliad, not just in the sort of superficial sense of a great war story, but one of those stories that can, I think, be told and retold and retold over and over again. You know, 
it's daunting to publish a book on the Civil War because there have been so many. There's been um, actually more than one book published on the Civil War for every day since the surrender at Appomattox. That's a whole lot of books. But I think that like the, like the Iliad, like the Old Testament, the Civil War is one of those stories that can continue to be retold and reinterpreted with, with each new generation. And yet a lot of the Civil War books that I'd read didn't quite satisfy me. I felt like they sort of fell roughly into, into two categories. On the one hand, there were the books that sort of looked at the Civil War from the 30,000 foot up kind of history channel perspective, um, where you're seeing these sort of blue and, and gray arrows going across a map. Or it's a little bit like, um, how many of you have visited Gettysburg? Wow. Wow. <laughs> OK, we have an audience of hardcore Civil War people here. How many of you remember, if you visited Gettysburg more than a few years ago, the electric map that they used to have? Yeah, with those little blue and red lights on it and this voice of this kind of like 1950s narrator who would intone, and the Union advanced on Little Round Top. And you would see these blue lights going boop, 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 boop. And then the Confederacy counterattacked, and you would see the red lights going boop, 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 boop. And so that was the kind of Civil War book that I felt like often um, gets written, the kind of Civil War book that treats the war as, in the words of one historian, David Davis, America's great 19th century Super Bowl. <laughs> Frankly, that kind of history usually made my eyes glaze over after the first 10 pages. I can never keep track of who was advancing on Little Round Top. In fact, what I told you, I have no idea whether it was the Union um, that advanced the Confederacy that counterattacked. I can never, never keep that stuff straight, even for a big battle like, uh, like Gettysburg. What interested me was the individual personalities, the individual stories, the individual struggles. And I felt like there was another school of Civil War history that was that was equally unsatisfying. And this was something that was um, less often found in, in popular history, more often found in, in academic history. And this was the kind of Civil War story that sort of broke everybody in the United States, all of these 30 million individuals in the United States in 1861, and put them into categories. The Northerners, the Southerners, the Blacks, the Whites, the Confederates, the Union. I, and I felt like that was equally unsatisfying. Because we all know that uh, we don't move ourselves according to a certain set of ideological and socioeconomic principles to which we kind of march in obedient lockstep and can be charted on uh, very neat bar graphs. And I think that we have to respect the individuality and the free will of people in the past um, enough to grant them that they were not automata either. I also knew, in fact, from my, from my own experience that history can work in, in very complicated ways. Um, when I was researching the story of the fall of, of Fort Sumter and reading these incredible accounts of the morning of the day that Sumter surrendered, when the fort was under intense bombardment, when much of it had caught fire and was pouring forth smoke. It was a beautiful sunny day in Charleston, crystal blue skies, and thousands and thousands of Charlestonians were gathered on the rooftops in church steeples along the Charleston Battery. And the newspaper account said these were black Charlestonians, white Charlestonians, young, old, men, women, all watching this scene unfold. The fort was pouring out so much smoke that it looked for a while as if a volcano were erupting in the center of, of Charleston Harbor. And reading this account, I couldn't help but think of the experience that I had had almost 10 years before living in Washington, DC. Being there on September 11th, 2001, living on 15th Street about a, about a mile north of the, of the White House coming out of my front door, gathering out on the street in a crowd of, of friends, neighbors, total strangers, looking in horror at the great column of smoke 
rising from the burning Pentagon, not knowing for certain at that moment um, what was even happening. Some people were saying the White House was burning. Some said the State Department. Reports were also saying the Pentagon. We were staring at this in horror, not knowing anything except that American history had suddenly taken a sharp right turn and that our country would never be the same again. And I suspected that that experience was much the same for, for people in, in 1861. But of course, the, the horrifying thing reading these descriptions of what happened in Charleston Harbor is that as these thousands of people watched the fort burn, and as an incoming shell struck the tall flagstaff that was holding the United States flag and the stars and stripes slowly toppled over and fell into the roiling smoke, instead of mourning, instead of being horrified, people cheered. And I, want to, I wanted to understand that as well. In fact, I think it could be said that that day, April 13th, April 12th to 13th, um, 1861, was America's first 9-11 moment. It was the first, in fact, it may have been the world's first 9-11 moment, the first historical drama, historical tragedy that everyone in the country witnessed almost in, in real time through the relatively new invention, the actually quite new invention of the, of the telegraph, um, invented only about 15 years earlier, and that had spread through the United States, through the world, much more quickly than the internet actually spread in, in more recent times. And so people got this news almost right away. Walt Whitman wrote, the news ran through the land as if by electric nerves. So I wanted to recapture that moment, and I wanted to capture the stories of Americans who, who responded to that moment, not necessarily with, with certitude and instant heroism, but with indecision, with uncertainty, and, and with, in fact, uh, self-doubt that turned, in, in some cases, into heroism. So I went, looking for, I went looking for such stories. And I think I'll uh, actually read to you um, a, few of these, a few of these stories. I'll, I'll give you the stories of um, three different episodes about characters uh, who I found facing this moment of decision in, uh, in different ways. One of them is the, is the Union commander in Charleston Harbor, a man named Major Robert Anderson. And Major Anderson really attracted me because he was such a complex character. He was such a conflicted character. He was um, a Southerner. He had grown up in a, in a Kentucky family um, that owned slaves. He had married a, a Georgia woman who's who inherited so many slaves from her, her father that um, Anderson said with satisfaction that he had made his fortune through the sale of his wife's Negroes. Um, terrible thing to, to say. And yet he had, like Major Emery, um, served the Stars and Stripes for, for his uh, entire, entire career. And he found himself taking command in uh, November of 1860 as the South, the Deep South, prepared to secede, taking command of the forts, uh, forts in fact, three forts in Charleston Harbor that were destined to become Fort Sumter in particular, the great irritant to this nascent Confederacy. Um, Sumter, a little two-acre pile of rocks, artificial island in the middle of Charleston Harbor that turned out to be of very little military significance um, whatsoever, um, but was symbolically hugely important to both the Union and the, and the Confederacy. So I'll read to you uh, just a little bit um, about Major Anderson. Major Robert Anderson had been sent to command the federal garrison in Charleston Harbor. His official orders were to strengthen the harbor's defenses against the far-fetched possibility of an attack by Great Britain or France, but everybody knew this was a sham. The real reason for his appointment had to do with a looming crisis threatening to split the country in half. Abraham Lincoln had been elected president just weeks earlier, and in response, the southern states were moving quickly towards secession it seemed certain that South Carolina would take the lead. The three forts commanding Charleston Harbor, Fort Moultrie, Fort Sumter, and Castle Pinckney, not only dominated the very hotbed of disloyalty, but could also, if properly manned, 
instantly shut down the largest southern port on the Atlantic seaboard. Most important, holding on to them would be a crucial symbolic statement to the nation and the world. The United States would not relinquish its grip on any federal property, nor on any of the states, without a fight. It would deal with secession as treason. If, however, it let the forts go peacefully, the national government would be sending quite a different message, that it was ready to negotiate with the aggrieved leaders of the slaveholding South, and perhaps even let the seceding states go peacefully as well. The new commander in Charleston Harbor had to be a dependable messenger, faithful and prompt of either message as circumstances might warrant. The junior officers waiting to salute his arrival could have been forgiven if their first sight of Anderson as he stepped gingerly from a small launch failed to inspire great confidence. Everything about their new commander seemed middling. He was a man in his 50s of mid-level rank, medium height, and moderate demeanor. Mild-mannered, nondescriptly handsome, the sort who left few vivid impressions even on those who had known him well. None surely could have guessed that women would soon beg for locks of that meticulously combed gray hair, that woodcuts of that bland, impassive face would appear on the front pages of magazines on both sides of the Atlantic. A scrupulous, methodical man, he was known in the service mainly for having translated certain French artillery textbooks into English. Anderson was, moreover, a southerner, who had grown up with slavery and whose family included strong partisans from the South. And yet here was the person to whom the United States government had just entrusted one of the most delicate military and political assignments in American history. So that's uh, Major Robert Anderson who would command the fort through its surrender uh, five, months, five months later and who would fight within himself such a wrenching battle that it would destroy him psychologically and perhaps physically as well. After Sumter's evacuation, he was so traumatized by the experience, um, not just of, of the battle itself, he had been in battle before, but the experience of, of feeling like the fate of the nation, um, as one of his officers said in a, in a letter, rested upon the points of our swords that the fate of, of his beloved United States depended on decisions that he might make or, or not make, indeed, during his time in command at Fort Sumter. He was so wrenched by this experience that he actually was never even able to write the official report that he was supposed to file about the Battle of Fort Sumter and its surrender. And uh, indeed, he, he very quickly um, was retired from the US, from the US Army. There is another um, hero who perhaps seemed, as 1861 began, to be an, an equally unlikely person to be a great uh, Civil War hero. And by this, I mean the man who had just come from Illinois to assume the United States presidency, Abraham Lincoln. Now, to us today, Lincoln seems, of course, to be a wise and visionary leader, um, in some ways almost, almost omnipotent. Our greatest president, um, it's uh, widely the consensus among historians. But stripping away what we know of Lincoln in the four years that followed, Abraham Lincoln in early 1861 had come to the White House from farther away geographically than any man had come before, all the way from Illinois. He'd never set foot in Washington, D.C. in the past 12 years. And in fact, his only real qualification for holding office, uh, for holding federal office, was the two years that he had, sent, he had spent as a relatively undistinguished congressman from Illinois in the, in the late 1840s, years in which he, he failed to accomplish very much of, of anything in Congress. He had sneaked into Washington under cover of darkness, um, late, uh, early in the morning, actually, in the, on the day after, um, after Washington's birthday. He'd begun the day at Independence Hall in Philadelphia, um, taking off his jacket, rolling up his shirt sleeves, and hauling up an enormous American flag to fly over Independence Hall. And then he had promptly sort of sneaked onto 
a train that nobody knew that he was he was on. Some accounts say that he disguised himself. In any case, he hid aboard this train so that he could pass unscathed through the city that was the very hotbed of secession and indeed thuggery, namely Baltimore itself. Baltimore thugs really aren't what they used to be. So Lincoln had come had come creeping into the into the capital. He was pilloried in uh, political cartoons. He was shown dressed in in women's clothing and with a veil over his face, creeping off of the off of the train. He was also in in coming to Washington, stepping as he knew into a place that was in some ways enemy territory. Washington was very much a southern city, a slave city. His very first um, address shortly after he got to Washington in front of Willard's Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, he stepped outside and he said, I am conscious that for the first time in this phase of my public career, I am speaking in public in a slave city. So he had a lot of enemies in, uh, in Washington. He had enemies or at least skeptics in his own cabinet. Um, in fact, John Hay and John Nicolay, his secretaries, would write many years later, no man thought that he would be the dominant figure within his cabinet, least of all Mr. Lincoln himself. And yet Lincoln would undergo a transformation in those early weeks of his presidency, a transformation that I think was the greatest one of his, of his life, and one that uh, perhaps indeed would, would save the Union. And I'd like to share with you uh, just a couple, of, a couple of pages of a pivotal moment in Lincoln's early presidency, a moment when he stepped out of the paralysis indeed that had, had afflicted him um, during his first weeks, weeks in which he hardly even considered or dealt with Fort Sumter at all and took perhaps the first um, really bold step that he would make in what would become a very bold presidency. As Major Anderson's men were counting their crumbs at the besieged Fort Sumter one night during the last week of March 1861, President and Mrs. Lincoln were hosting their first official dinner in the White House. Anxious about Washington protocol, they had sought the discreet coaching of Secretary of State William Seward and his able staff, and by all accounts, this initial Republican foray into formal entertaining was competent enough, if not exactly splendid. The gaslight and candles had been artfully arranged to conceal the state dining room's shabbiness left over from the Buchanan administration. And the air was perfumed by fresh spring blossoms in gilt silver vases, a refreshing change from the artificial flowers preferred by the previous administration. Mrs. Lincoln appeared arrayed in garish silk, her plump hand clutching a fan that she fluttered energetically, coquettishly, she seemed to think. William Howard Russell, the acerbic correspondent for the London Times, peered at her through his wire-rimmed spectacles, taking mental notes on every detail of this frontier queen's curious mannerisms. They were, he would tell his readers, stiffened by the consciousness that her position requires her to be something more than plain Mrs. Lincoln, the wife of the Illinois lawyer. With the exception of Russell, the guest list was, as might have been expected, an unadventurous one. The entire cabinet was in attendance, seated stiffly in their drab frock coats like a conclave of Methodist parsons. The menu too was conservative, imported wines accompanied fish prepared a la Francaise. In the end, it was the president himself who set his guests at ease, resting his bony elbows on the table and treating everyone to a comical yarn about a drunken Irish coachman he'd met on his days as a young lawyer riding the circuit. Only one of the administration's senior counselors was conspicuously absent, General Winfield Scott, the hero of 1812 and 1848, and typically a fixture at such occasions, his monumental 300-pound bulk gold-braided and brass-buttoned, making an impressive centerpiece at any Washington function. Nor had Scott, whose appetite for good food and fine wine, whose, whose appetite for good food and fine wine was almost as legendary as his martial exploits ever been known to decline a dinner invitation. The other guests awaited his appearance at table for some time. Several of them had glimpsed him in the reception room as they came in, until word finally came that the general was indisposed. 
he had indeed come to the White House, everyone was told, but one of his myriad physical ills, known to include gout, rheumatism, and dropsy, had compelled him to retire to a guest bedroom upstairs for the remainder of the evening. This was untrue. Scott was, in fact, nowhere in the mansion. Nor was his decrepitude causing him more torment than usual. The general-in-chief's indisposition was of a political nature. Scott had come early, summoned by an urgent note from the president. Lincoln's brief missive had not specified the matter at hand, but Scott knew it must involve Fort Sumter. Indeed, he, seemed, he assumed that the president was finally ready to discuss evacuation plans, a conversation the general had been awaiting with growing impatience. The day after the inauguration, he had informed Lincoln bluntly that any opportunity to reinforce Sumter had long passed and that the only question was whether its garrison could be withdrawn before the rebels attacked. A few days later, Scott even took it upon himself to draft orders for the evacuation and forward them to the War Department pending the president's final approval. Major Anderson and his men, he said, should leave Sumter literally as soon as they could find a boat to carry them. Moreover, Scott knew that almost all of Lincoln's other top advisors, as well as, well as the heads of both major political parties in the North, shared his opinions. It was with much self-confidence then, and not a little condescension, that General Scott met Lincoln before the first White House dinner. At six foot five and more than 300 pounds, Scott was one of the few men in Washington who towered physically over the president. His opinion of his new commander-in-chief had never been especially high. Back in November, he'd snorted that if he'd ever laid eyes on the former Illinois congressman during his brief stint in Washington, he certainly couldn't recall it. Presidents might come and go. Scott had served eight of them in his years as general-in-chief, but the hero of Lundy's Lane and Veracruz remained. Scott took it for granted, naturally, that he would steer the administration's military policies himself. Now, he barely gave Lincoln a chance to speak before he began lecturing the president about the southern forts and unfolded a memorandum on the subject he had penned earlier in the day. Not only must Sumter obviously be evacuated, he said, but such a gesture of magnanimity toward our southern friends would unquestionably keep the Upper South in the Union and might even bring South Carolina and Florida back in. He had, he asked, he, he added helpfully, asked his secretary to draw up detailed instructions for the withdrawals of troops. These he offered for the president's approval. But the president, far from thanking Scott for his wisdom and diligence, was turning pale with anger. The general's plan, Lincoln told a confidant the next day, had given him a cold shock. Abandoned Sumter to the Confederates? Moreover, how dare he instruct the president on matters of statecraft? In fact, Lincoln had summoned Scott to the White House to talk not about evacuating Sumter, but about reinforcing it, and to tell the general to be ready to implement plans for sending in food and supplies. Anderson had played us false, the president snapped. The major, for reasons of his own, had been misleading his superiors about the true feasibility of holding on to the fort. If Scott was not prepared to carry out his orders, Lincoln concluded coldly he would find some other person who might do so. The general, crimson-faced, stuffed his memorandum back into his tunic and hastily departed, stomping out of the White House just as the first guests were arriving for dinner. It had taken so great an insult as this to make Winfield Scott pass up a meal. Well, instead of reading the last uh, section that I was, going to, I was going to read, maybe I should stop here and, and ask you for questions and, and uh, get a little discussion going, because with the Civil War, um, one thing that's guaranteed is that, especially a group who, as I can, I can tell, have considerable knowledge and experience and have probably done considerable reading about it, um, everybody's got an opinion. Um, the opinions are, are, quite, uh, are quite different. When I was in South Carolina, I got some very interesting uh, opinions from a gentleman talking about the War of Northern Aggression, but uh, you're welcome to ask any question. A gentleman in the back, you had your hand up first. Fort Sumter was fired on by the South. So the South effectively started the Civil War. 
Right? So why would they want that in history? Why would they have to even worry about that if it wasn't important? Because then they would say, well, the South started the war. Why would they fire on Fort Sumter? Well, you know, the, it's, it's interesting when you look at the way that that decision was made. Because Lincoln, as I just suggested, went through a period of really agonizing over, over this decision of sifting the information that he was, he was getting, um, sending people down to Fort Sumter to inspect it uh, for, them, for themselves, which, which the Southerners surprisingly um, let, them, let them do, getting um, letters that had been, had been sent by Major Abner Doubleday, the non-inventor of baseball, um, who was an officer at, uh, at Fort Sumter, and really thinking about this strategically. The, the rebel government, the, uh, the Confederates, as far as we can tell, put very little thought into this decision. It was a sort of an, almost an, an automatic, reflexive decision that they had declared their independence. They were a sovereign nation. Here was this little force. It was just 60, about 60 soldiers and a brass band on a fort in the very center, the epicenter of secession itself, Charleston, where the secession movement had indeed uh, begun. Here they were, they, if the Confederacy was to claim its sovereignty, this could not be allowed to remain um, any more than the United States government today might um, tolerate a little outpost of armed Taliban troops in the center of, of Washington, D.C., or camped on the National Mall. So it was really, it was a kind of an, an emotional decision. Lincoln, I believe, recognized at a certain point that war at this, at this moment was just about inevitable. And that if the war was going to start, it would be much better for it to start um, with a southern shot than with a, with a Union-fired one. And uh, so I think he, he sent a resupply mission to Fort Sumter, which was, which was really the sort of spark that, that prompted the southern attack in, in an immediate way. And Lincoln knew that, in a sense, it was a win-win move for him. If the South decided to forbear and, and let the resupply mission in and restock Fort Sumter, it could buy more time. Um, if, on the other hand, they, they opened fire on the fort, they would be firing the first shot. And in fact, that's what happened, and it led to what I've described as America's first 9-11 moment, a moment when the previously quite divided North, at least briefly, rallied together and, be, and, and came behind a, a massive um, war effort, and in fact, volunteered in such numbers that, uh, that the Lincoln administration couldn't even accommodate all of the, all of the volunteers. Yes, ma'am. You know, I would say that the biggest surprise, the, the story that I think is perhaps the most um, original in my book is the story of the contrabands, the so-called contrabands at Fort Monroe, Virginia. Um, and the story of, of how, as I see it, the true end of slavery in America began. Um, fort Monroe was and, and is indeed a, a, a fort right at the mouth of the, of the Chesapeake Bay. Um, it was a site, in fact, that had been fortified by the very by, the very first uh, Jamestown settlers in 1609, and had been intermittently a, a military base for uh, for almost three centuries by the time that the uh, that the Civil War began. Um, moreover, remarkably enough, it was the spot where the very first shipload of African slaves arrived in the English colonies in 1619, and it was also um, the place where I believe that slavery in America. Um, really ended or, or received at least its, its death blow. And this happened one night just about six weeks into the Civil War in late May of 1861 when three African-American men enslaved um, near Fort Monroe sneaked under cover of darkness into the fort. The fort at this point was held by Union troops, one of the very few bastions in, in the South, in the Confederate-occupied territory that the Union Army at this point had managed to hold on to. These slaves came seeking asylum from the Union general, General Benjamin Butler, who commanded the garrison, the Union garrison there. And Butler was faced with a dilemma. This was a war that Lincoln had explicitly stated was not a war to end slavery. He had said over and over that he had no intention to interfere with the South's institutions wherever they existed at that time. And yet, as Butler looked at these men, 
he found himself making a, uh, a very different decision. I'll let you uh, turn that off. Thank you. Yes. That's all right. These things happen in 2011 that didn't happen in 1861. <laughs> so uh, so this, this general ended up making a different decision. He looked at these three men who had until recently been employed building fortifications for the, the local Confederate troops. And he thought, I can't send these men back into slavery, back to work for the enemy who are constructing these platforms to point cannons at me and my men. So the next day when a Confederate officer came riding up to the fort under, under flag of truce, Butler met him and when this officer said, I claim our slaves back under the federal fugitive slave laws, which according to you, according to your, to your president, are still in force in the United States. Um, he looked at the man and he said, I claim these men under the laws of war as contraband property. If you Southerners insist on treating people as property, I will treat them as property. And the laws of war say that any property being used by the military against you can be confiscated legally. And then he said, and, and moreover, you claim to be an independent country, no longer under the laws of the United States, and I intend to take you at your word. This, he's a lawyer. He's a very accomplished, very accomplished Massachusetts lawyer in, in civilian life. So the Southerner went away flummoxed. And the next day, eight more fugitive slaves showed up at the fort and were allowed asylum. The day after that, 47 people showed up. Word got out. Yeah, word got out. What, what historians call the grapevine telegraph. It's, and that's, what, that's another thing that was fascinating to me, just how quickly African-Americans in the South, despite all of the efforts to keep them from learning what was going on in the war, found out. There was one slave owner, one of the leading secessionist activists in Charleston, who, when he talked about politics in front of his slaves, spoke only in French so that they wouldn't understand. What about the French Huguenots? Well, this man, this man spoke only French in any case. I don't think his slaves understood French, but no matter what he did, no matter what the, what the, uh, the slaveholders did, word um, reached their slaves very quickly and they took political actions um, themselves. So before long, slaves were pouring into this fort by the hundreds. Um, soon as the, uh, as the Union troops made more incursions into Confederate territory, they were pouring into the Union lines by the, by the thousands. So that by the fall of 1862, by the time that Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation, one Union officer said the, the, the arrival of the slaves was like the onrushing of cities. That's what a great tidal wave it, it was. And in fact, I think that by the time Lincoln really proclaimed that uh, slavery was, was abolished in, in most of the South, that slavery had already received its, its death blow, that there was, no, there was no going back. And the best testimony of this that I've found is a story of something that happened on the very morning the Emancipation Proclamation was announced in the fall of 1862. Um, none other than Secretary of State uh, William H. Seward was, was crossing Lafayette Square in, in Washington when uh, a Union Army officer came walking towards him in the other direction, spotted Seward and said, uh, Mr. Seward, congratulations on the great historic deed that the Lincoln administration has done today. And Seward sort of snorted and said, uh, what historic deed? And the Union officer said, what? the emancipation of the slaves. And Seward said, the emancipation of the, of the slaves was decreed in the first gun fired at Fort Sumter, and we have been the last to hear it. We have let off a puff of wind over an established fact. Seward was, Seward was a great, uh, he was a great, uh, that's right. Yeah, he was, he was uh, one of the leaders. And in fact, it's ironic because he was then seen as being the, uh, the moderate, he was then the, the moderate within the Lincoln administration. Another question. Yes, sir. Um, this Emory family. Yeah. Um, living in the backwaters of Maryland. Excuse me, backwaters? <laughs> Where are the front waters on the eastern shore? <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it, fair enough. No, please. Yeah. 
very prominent people uh, on both sides. Yes. Well, yeah. Well, Major Emery. Um, yeah, Major Emery actually. He, as I said, he had been a cadet at West Point from the age of fourteen, and then followed the U.S. Army wherever it sent him for the next. Uh, I guess by the time of the of the Civil War, that would be that would be more than forty years, and so. In that, I'm sorry, not more than four. Well, it'd been about uh, about 30 years. 30 years by the time the Civil War began. Um, so, in that time, he had uh, he had really come to know um, just about everybody. The U.S. Officer Corps before the Civil War was a very small and clubby group of about a thousand men, and so you would get to know other people. He had spent time in Washington and gotten to know various political figures there. Uh, going back to going back to Andrew Jackson, he had he had really been around. In fact. Later in the course of, of researching this family, um, I was sent a copy of Major Emery's memoirs, which were never published, and which an absolutely gripping, amazing memoir, going back to his earliest boyhood, his first memory of growing up in Maryland, which was at the age of three, being carried by his slave nurse down to the banks of the Chester River to see the longboats rowing reconnaissance from the British ship HMS Bellerophon um, in the War of 18. 12. And going from that all the way up, his experiences at West Point, incredibly vivid of what it was like to be, to be a student at West Point in the 1820s, and all the way up to his experiences as a young military officer. And as I'm reading along in this manuscript, it gets to a certain point um, when he's talking about being in the war against the Creek Indians in the 1830s as a young officer. He's describing being pursued by Creek horsemen through a pine, a pine woods and describes him falling off his horse and sort of impaling his hand on a, on a pine stump, and how ever since then he had been plagued with intermittent pain in his, in his right hand. And then he writes, in fact, I'm being plagued with this pain right now, so I will set down my pen for the moment and pick up this manuscript later, and it stops. We never get the rest of his story. So uh, it could have been, I think, one of the great 19th century American memoirs, except it's only about 30 or 40 pages pages long. But he lived a remarkable life. Emory University is, is named after his, I believe it was first cousin, um, John Emory, who was actually born on that same plantation um, in the late 1700s. And uh, yeah, it, he was a Methodist minister, and it's named after him. Yes, sir. I was just wondering why you chose him. His story was so fascinating. But, uh, uh, did you know? Did you know that about Garfield himself? And what do you think that the Civil War experience, you know, how that affected him, and perhaps his early uh, presidency? Then, then having been cut down by the assassination, yeah. I just saw a new. There's a terrific book by that. Candace Millard. Yes. Yeah. Saying that he was such a promising president, and he was just a guy I've always dismissed. I yeah, I James almost Garfield. feel like James Garfield, um, I didn't choose James Garfield, James Garfield chose me. I mean, certainly, if, if you were to ask me um, a couple of years ago, would I end up writing about this guy who I'd always thought of as this kind of bland, bushy, bearded, you know, what's called one of the Smith brothers presidents in the late 19th century, I would have told you you were crazy. But I actually, I discovered a very different Garfield. I discovered Garfield as a young man in his 20s more or less completely obscure at this point be beyond his native state of Ohio. Had grown up in great poverty. Um, had uh, He was a sort of a prodigy, Garfield was. By the time he was 30 years old, he had worked as a, a mule driver of canal boats. He had been a teacher. He had been a janitor. He had been a house carpenter. He had been a professor of Latin, Greek, mathematics, theology, history, English, just about anything that you could profess in the 1850s. Um, he had been a college president, he had been a lawyer, he had been a preacher, he had been um, finally uh, a, a state senator. I mean, pretty good resume. And actually, by the time he was, he was 30, he had also been a Union Army colonel, it would, it would turn out. So um, he was a remarkable guy, and I, I took Garfield as a way of getting inside the head of somebody who was young and ambitious and from the North, and not yet famous, and trying to sort of surf this surf this wave of the Civil War. 
um, thinking not just, again, not just about um, ideology, but also about his own future, his own, his own career. And in fact, he, he surfed it, as we know, right into the White House. And he's a sort of an exemplar of this generation from the, from the North um, that would end up ruling the country for the next uh, better part of half a, half a century. In fact, um, really all but one person elected to the presidency for the next 40 years would be Ohio-born Union generals, Ohio-born Union officers, sorry. So that's why I became fascinated by Garfield. And Garfield was somebody who also went through a great transformation on, on matters of slavery and race. Um, he began sort of as a, as a typical kind of wishy-washy, apolitical guy who sort of thought, yeah, slavery is kind of wrong, but the abolitionists are sort of annoying people, and uh, I'm not really going to, I, I hate politics. It's sort of like the prevailing attitude I hear among my students today, frankly, and I think among a lot of the generation of college students. You know, politics is so messed up that it's really not worth it even trying to get involved, do anything with politics. It's kind of gross. And then by the time the Civil War began, he was strongly anti-slavery. And in fact, he became, I think, perhaps the most radical president on matters of race that we've ever had, ever had. Um, I mean, he gave an inaugural address when he became president in 1881 that was more than half about race and civil rights. No other president, of course, including Barack Obama, has ever done that in history. This is, and this is a moment when it was, di it was difficult to talk about civil rights. Reconstruction had been rolled back by his predecessor who was standing there on the steps of the Capitol with him as he took the oath of office. Basically, all across the North, white Americans were backing away from the cause of the freed slaves, slaves who had been freed almost 20 years before. And he stood up and he said in his inaugural address, he said, the greatest event in the history of our nation since the Constitution was the emancipation of the Negro. And Yet this great historic event will not be complete until not only is the Negro free, but raised to full political, economic, and social equality with the white man. And he said there are three ways that this has to happen. One is for the liberated slaves to receive and their children to receive full and equal education. The other is for them to exercise full political rights, and finally, for them to be raised in a, it, it, economically to a position of, of equality. And he said, our country, these were his words, he said, our country cannot afford to have a permanent class of serfs. And he said, and the only way that this, these things can happen is for the federal government or the state governments to enforce it by rule of law. And I will make sure that the federal government does everything it can to enforce it when I am president. Um, and in fact, he said, he said, you know, 50 years from, he said, I, I can promise you that just as we look back on the controversies that divided our grandparents with astonishment, so in 50 years' time, people who are children today, young Americans, black and white, will marvel at the fact that our country ever fought a war over slavery, and they will bless us that we made all Americans, black and white, equal before the law. It still gives me chills to think about those, those words and to think that it took a lot longer than 50 years for that prophecy to be fulfilled and that indeed his words would be echoed almost a century later by someone else standing there on the National Mall in Washington talking about little children who would grow up to see this kind of equality. Maybe one last question? Uh, yes, sir, you had your... I was interested in the footsie going on between the existing federal government and the Southern states regarding federal, federal military property, of which uh, um, Fort Sumter is an example. And you're mentioning uh, telegraph as a means to keep people informed. Well, the forts probably didn't have that advantage. I bet they were isolated and the only trends, you know, their orders and their news probably was coming by steamer weeks to do. And I was, I was just wondering about that connection, uh, maybe a little bit more immediate might be the arsenals in, in the southern states, uh, the federal arsenals, which had military uh, uh, gear in them. Yeah. And 
whether whether the same kind of policy you saw at Sumter was also going on with the federal arsenals all through the South? Yeah. Um, you know, really one by one, these arsenals and forts had just dropped sort of like ripe plums into the laps of the of the Confederates. Um, they had in almost every, well, really in, in every case, um, except for just a couple of places, um, it had happened totally bloodlessly. Um, they simply sent usually a cadre of, of local militia, armed militia to the fort, demanded that it be turned over, um, and the uh, the officer, the United States Army officer, would simply turn the forts uh, over to them when faced with superior numbers. In some cases, in fact, they turned the forts over not just voluntarily, but but eagerly in the case of um, as happened in, in Texas, when the commander of the of the United States forces in Texas um, turned over basically all of the troops, all of the forts, with a single stroke um, in Texas to the to the Confederacy, and then very soon was a Confederate general himself. So this had happened time and again, and. The Confederates really expected that this would happen at Fort Sumter as well. And in fact, when you ask about the communications, one thing that was really surprising is that they let the Union um, messages, the, the messages coming from Washington in particular, and, and the mail coming from all over the North, get through to the fort unobstructed until the very last couple of days before the bombardment began. Because what they thought was that you know, the government in Washington, when it realizes just how overwhelmed this little garrison of 60-some of men is by the now thousands of rebel militiamen encircling the harbor, um, they'll be telling Washington how hopeless the situation is, and this will be um, a good way for us to make sure that they, that they evacuate. And so that's what, was, that's what was happening. And so in fact, it was kind of surreal, because here they are under, under siege, and they're getting, you know, people are sending Major Anderson cases of, of cigars and, and wine. At a certain point, the food does get cut off. But uh, it's this very sort of surreal surreal form of, of siege. Perhaps the strangest thing of all that, that happened, um, it was the kind of thing that ha happened again in the Civil War because of these friendships that existed across the battle lines between North and South, was that when General PGT Beauregard um, arrived to take command of the local rebel forces on behalf of the Confederate government, he had been a dear lifelong friend of Major Anderson's and immediately sent across a case of brandy and cigars as a token of his continuing esteem to Major Anderson. So um, the, uh, the past was a foreign country. They did things differently there. And uh, with that, I, I thank you for coming. I'm going to be um, signing books that are for sale uh, just outside the door, and I hope to have a chance to talk to some of you out there as well. Thank you.